We are still uh, in 1 Timothy, so take your Bible and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We are going to do our best to finish this passage of Scripture. Uh, today, we may need to come back and do a little bit of uh, digging more deeply into some of the things that Timothy is getting at in this incredibly important first chapter. The whole thing's important, obviously. But uh, these are things that uh, uh, may need some further discussion in the days ahead. 1 Timothy 1, starting with verse 1, we'll read verses 1 and 2, and uh, then 3 through 6, and then finally jump down to verse 18 through 20. Uh, I do that only to set the context and hopefully give you uh, some more information, particularly if you have not been with us for the last four previous sermons uh, as we've worked our way through 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. Now drop down to verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Father, I thank you and praise you for your word. There are portions of your word that give us great hope and encouragement. All of, us do, all of it does, really. And there are portions of your word that are weighty, that have, they, they have gravity to them, such as the passage that is before us. And Lord, as we consider now this passage of Scripture, beginning in verse 18, about Paul's charge to Timothy to fight the good fight, I pray that you would open our minds and eyes. We always pray that, Lord, because we do not want your word to fall on hard soil or soil that's shallow or soil that, that has a mixture of thorns and thistles. We want this word today to fall upon good soil. I pray that we might each individually ask you, O Lord, protect and prepare my heart to receive your word. And then we pray that the, the plowing of the Holy Spirit would plant it deep within our hearts, our minds, and that ultimately it would bring forth the fruit of holy and godly living. We pray that not only for your glory, but also for the good of the church. We pray now that as we enter into the study and before we come to the Lord's table, that we would consider these things deeply and then respond to them appropriately. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, you see your outline before you. Let's just start with verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may, and the ESV says it like this, that you may wage the good warfare that you may fight the good fight. Fight the good fight of what exactly? What, is that, what does that mean? 
You've heard it used, no doubt, over and over again. And I'm not talking about just in church life. It is used generally, I'm talking about in the secular world, to mean do your best. Keep on keeping on. Do what is right. I can't tell you how many times I've been to a funeral service where there was no indication that the person that was being remembered was a follower of Jesus Christ, and yet this phrase was used of them, that they have fought the good fight with nothing to do with the Christian faith. But Paul has something very specific in the meaning of his words to Timothy and to you and to me. For Paul personally, you got to get a picture of this, it was late in the game. This was one of the last letters that he would write. In just a couple of years, he was going to be killed by having his head chopped off. So he wanted to make sure that Timothy had the encouragement that he would need as Paul ended his journey on earth. What would be the most important thing that he could leave ringing in the ears of the young man that he had left to continue the work that he had started at the church in Ephesus? What was exactly this charge I entrust to you? 1 Timothy 4, 6, by the way, if you're new to us, we do this as we preach through, we give you what might be called proof texts. We give you other ideas of Scripture that supports the flow of what we're trying to say. I don't always read the entire thing, but we always point to a particular point that will help us to understand what was this charge that was entrusted to Timothy. Paul later said this, if you put these things, now we're going to talk about these things in this message, just as we have in the past. But if you put these things before the brothers and sisters, this is generic, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Every leader wants to hear that. And so he's telling Timothy how to be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And, and here's what he's saying to the church, being trained in, look at this, the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. The charge to Timothy was a sovereign charge. It was a sacred trust. It was to take the faith, that is God's truth, a precious treasure that is to be guarded and give it to the people. Second Timothy, that would be the second book that Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Now look at this. We're going to come back to this. This is the job of every leader, of every Christian, by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So what was Paul's charge to Timothy? Throughout the first chapter, you heard it. His charge to Timothy was to confront. Specifically, he, has, he says, to stop certain individuals. That's back in verse 3, but we're going to find out the names of some of those individuals to confront to stop the teaching of certain individuals who were, now this is a word, this is a phrase that I used last week, and I want you to hear it, sound doctrine just means sound teaching. So there were certain persons in the church that were not teaching sound doctrine, they were teaching other doctrine. And let me remind you, and I'll talk about absolutes throughout this series, there is only sound doctrine and everything else. And what will get us into trouble is when we try to synthesize sound doctrine with other doctrine. 
I said this last week about the word indoctrination, and, and, and I anticipated that maybe some people would say, well, pastor, you're just trying to indoctrinate us. And I said, you bet I am. My agenda, my goal is to do my best to interpret this book to make sure that good doctrine, sound doctrine, God's doctrine, absolute doctrine is getting into you to indoctrinate you, to indoctrinate our teens. And I said it last week, if you weren't here, this will be the first time, but I'm reminding you, someone is indoctrinating you all the time. Someone is trying to put their doctrine, their teaching about how life is to be viewed and how life is to be lived into you all of the time. And so Paul is telling Timothy, you've got something called the faith. Not a faith. King Charles of England was just crowned, was, was just put on the throne of England. It's interesting that back in the 90s, he said, I would, this, this is what he said, I would personally like to tweak one of the titles that I will have as the King of England. That title goes back, I'm not I'm not affirming the title because I think it's, it's wrong in the first place, but it gives you an idea of the mindset that is indoctrinating a lot of people in the church. This goes back to the Reformation and when the Church of England broke away from the Roman Catholic Church and the King of England was seen as the head of the Church of England. And so therefore, one of the titles that's given to the sovereign of England is defender of the faith that was given to King Charles. In 1994, he said, I would rather that say defender of faith because I do not want Christianity to take precedence over Islam, Hinduism, these are his words, Wicca. Now, certainly as a political leader, even in, in a system like that, you recognize that there are certain things that may be done, have to be done. I'm using this as an example. It's not a faith. It's the faith. And this is for us today. Listen. We need to over and over and over again talk about discerning that there is only sound doctrine, there is the faith, and that is the faith once for all delivered to the saints, and then there is everything else. No middle ground. This is absolutely foundational to our understanding of who we are as a church and how we are to conduct ourselves later on, in fact, here, you see what he's laying in the first chapter? The foundation of the once-for-all doctrine delivered to the saints. But he's going to connect that to how we live. And back uh, several sermons ago, I used these big words, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy means sound doctrine, leads to sound living practice, orthopraxy. And so Paul is going to connect it. That's why the title of the sermon series is Sound Doctrine and Godly Living. They always go together. I hope to come to you soon. Paul is going to write in chapter 3, but I am writing these things so that you, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Well, what do you mean by that, Paul? Which is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and the ground of the truth of the Word of God. Not only was Timothy charged 
commissioned. The military metaphor is, is there. Commissioned. This was his charge. You are too. And so am I. Now, who has the responsibility to maintain sound doctrine? Okay, let's, let, let's look at it this way. Who is Paul addressing first in this chapter? Timothy. Divinely appointed leaders, and we're going to get to what they look like. They have a job description. Paul gives that a little bit later on. They have a job description. Divinely appointed leaders, the elders in the church, have the primary responsibility to give out sound doctrine in the teaching of God's Word, not their teaching. Hopefully this is not my sermon. It is my taking the Word of God, trying to unpack it and give it to you, to exposit the meaning to you with certain applications. Yes, it's that. But now let's move this circle on out. It's not just divinely appointed elders responsible to give the Word of God to the church. There are other leaders that are sitting here right now. There are husbands. Husbands, you have a divinely appointed responsibility within your household to give the Word of God to your wife and to your children and to your grandchildren. Moms, in your sphere, you are divinely appointed and responsible to know sound doctrine and to give it to your children and to your grandchildren, not just so they'll be indoctrinated with sound doctrine, but so they can live out their lives in a godly fashion. Let, let me show you uh, a quote from Mark Dever. He put together a book. We've read that book. Our elders have. We've seen what it said. I've taught this. may not agree with everything Mark Dever says, but I do agree with this. The first mark that he said of a healthy church, the first mark of a healthy church is expositional preaching. It is not only the first mark. It is far and away the most important of them all because if you get this one right, all of the others should follow, should. Not infallibly will, but they should follow. So that is the job of God-ordained, divinely appointed leaders. Now, Paul tells Timothy and us that this is a war, okay? Did you get that? Wage the good warfare, fight the good fight. This is, now, this sounds a little bit odd. What in the world would Paul mean when he says, that you are to fight the good fight. You are to wage the good warfare. It's not good in the sense of fun or pleasant because on a daily basis and as we live out the, the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ, sometimes it is not fun. Sometimes it is not pleasant. But here's what he means by good. It means noble. It means finding something worth fighting for, worth contending for. And we find that it is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Jude 3, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered the saints. Let me, ask, let me just ask you something. When you wake up, when you woke up this morning, and, and I really do hope that as a result of this message, tomorrow when you wake up, you'll, you'll feel differently. When you woke up this morning, was one of the first thoughts, maybe the first, not the first thought, but one of the first thoughts was, today, Father, I am in a war.
You don't need to raise your hands. But it really would be interesting to know how many of you actually had that thought. Today, Father, I am in a war, and one of the things I want to do is Paul charged young Timothy is to wage the good warfare. I want to put on my weapons even as I go to church. I don't want to focus on being at play. I want to focus on being at war. And let me just say this. Some of you who may be visiting here today and you're thinking about maybe coming and joining our church, there will be a membership matters class that will happen sometime. Barbie, we just introduced her, went through that class. And parents, please, please, please do not choose your church home based primarily on whether or not it is fun for your kids. Please. I'm not against having fun. Talk to Jan, talk to my family. We, we love to have funs, but fun, but if you will choose the church that you go to based on the truth that is being presented to your children from the youngest to the oldest, and that is an absolute. We are not spectators in this war. You are not in the inactive reserves. I was in that once. Ready to be called up. If there's war, this is war. And you are on active duty. You are a, get this, spiritual combat soldier engaged, and this is very clear from this text, in a lifelong war that is filled with everyday daily battles. And so wash out from your mind that the Christian life is, okay, I'm going to coast through life today and this week, and then next week if there's a battle, I'll go to the Lord, I'll pray about it, I'll pick up my spiritual weapons. What Paul is saying is there may be a, a more intense battle today, but you are in a protracted war that will only end when you die and go to be with Jesus. Does that, does that resonate? What does that mean? It means that there, there will never be a time when your spiritual enemies are not trying to destroy you. They're trying to do it right now. Those birds are coming, according to the parable of the sower, plucking up the seed of the word that is falling on non-fertile soil, hardened soil. There will never be a minute in your life, Christian, when your spiritual enemies are not trying to destroy you. You can't go on leave. You can go on vacation, but even then you will be engaged in spiritual warfare. By the way, you can't retire until you die. Maybe Jesus will come back this afternoon, then you can retire. You will never get away from being on the front lines. And if you are one of those that I've talked to before, and you just think, hey, if I hear what, what the pastor is saying, but if I just don't think about it, Maybe it'll be okay. Not. Your enemies are satanic forces. The world system. And I said this in our ABF class. The world system is your enemy. It doesn't matter if a red wave happens or not. That's not our hope. Ultimately. You've got the world forces around you. You've got your own sinful nature to battle against every day. Anybody ever recognize that besides me? And you've got the enemy of our souls, the devil, and he's certainly never going to take a day off. And that's why John MacArthur wrote a book entitled Truth War. Truth War. We are in war every time. Now, 
we have weapons that are powerful. Don't get the idea that our weapons are fleshly. Paul says that. We, we, walk, we walk in this world. We walk according to the flesh. But folks, we do not war according to the flesh. Our weapons are not carnal. They're not fleshly. They are divinely powerful for the destruction of strongholds. Now watch this. He's talking about the things that are happening in your mind and heart. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, let's move on. That's verse 18. Paul says, and you can put it several ways, I'm going to say that these are two weapons. Two weapons. We know that Ephesians 18, 618 gives us, 518 and follows, following all through chapter 6, gives us the weapons of our warfare, the sword, the shield, the helmet, the boots, the, the, the girdle, the belt, all the rest of that. But these are two primary weapons that Paul lists for Timothy. Look at verse 19. Holding faith and a good conscience. These go together. They are two different things, but they go together. Holding faith, what does that mean? A one of kids? All right, you remember 2 Timothy 2.15? This is, this is where we get awana, A-W-A-N-A, ashamed workmen are not, uh, approved workmen are not ashamed, okay? Do your best. We don't want to be ashamed workmen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, doing what? Holding, rightly handling the Word of God. You cannot wage the good and noble warfare without holding firmly to, now listen to this, and rightly handling, they go together, the faith. What is that? It's the sacred scriptures. It's the sacred writings. They were, they were there. They were Right there, when Paul was talking about this in 2 Timothy, from childhood, he said, from the time you were a child, before Paul had come on the scene, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. This had to do with the completed Old Testament, but hang on, there would come more, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, all Scripture, all Scripture, all Scripture, including that which was being written right then by Paul and other of the apostles is breathed out by God. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now when Paul says the faith, he's not talking about the act of believing, but again, the Word of God. The objective reality that exists outside of ourselves and that is true no matter what we do with it. Now, later on, and we're going to point this out right here and then come back to it, two of the guys of the certain men, I'm sure there were other certain men, but Paul calls out two, doesn't really say specifically later on, Hymenaeus, he will give an, a, 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 an example of what he was doing, the other doctrine, doesn't say they shipwrecked the faith, you can't do that. The faith is sound and solid and cannot be shipwrecked no matter what you do with it, but it certainly indicates they made a shipwreck of their faith, the way that they were handling the Word of God. So let me say it like this, anyone, anyone, anyone. Now, let me put a parenthesis in there. Thank you for having the Berean spirit. I hope you are. I, I, hope, you, I hope everything you listen to, you're, you're comparing to the Word of God. Not only here in this meeting, but also in your ABF classes, in other groups that you're meeting with. Anyone adding to this book. Taking away from this book. Or negating the clear teaching of Scripture 
I'm not talking about those matters that we put in that third circle. We may have differences of opinion over eschatology, the study of end times, how Jesus is coming back, but we all believe that he is coming back. That is a gospel doctrine. And anyone who is guilty of negating, adding to, subtracting in any way from gospel doctrine, please hear this, is either going to be an immature believer who desires to be a teacher, pride enters in, and they start teaching things that are not scriptural. Now, what happens? What should we do with those kinds of... And they're in the church. We lovingly come alongside and do what 2 Timothy tells us to do. We use the Word of God for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And they hear us. If they're just immature believers, that's one thing. And they'll come back to the, to the solid gospel doctrines. What, by the way, what's our core? The five solas that you see all around, the Apostles' Creed, those elements of the gospel faith, and they'll come back to those. But there are other people in the church. By the way, these immature believers should absolutely not be teaching elders. And that's one of the qualifications. There's, there's a level of maturity, tested maturity, battle-tested maturity that needs to be a part of, of every teaching elder. Now, that's one thing, and it can slide over. What if a person who is immature or whatever, and they start teaching and believing things and start teaching these in the church, or they come from outside the church? That's what Paul indicates in Acts chapter 20. What happens then? And they become hardened. They do not listen to sound doctrine. Then we can say their heretical teachings are... If someone teaches heresy, what's he called? A heretic. And again, we're not talking about the, these debatable kinds of things. We're talking about the core doctrines of the faith. And if they do not listen to correction, church discipline, we'll see this in a minute, they can very well make shipwreck of their faith. And this is the case of some in the church at Ephesus. And in every church, they swerve and they wander away from Scripture. Do you know... And I, I'm not the only one who says this. We're all afraid of persecution. We have a, a national day. We didn't pray on that national day. We should have. For the persecuted church, we fear persecution. A greater danger to the church than persecution is heresy that is allowed to remain. We don't have a national day of heretics because every Sunday, every day should be a correction of some of the things that they teach. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. These are examples that uh, these, these happen. These actually happen. They've happened to me. So what do you do with them? And this is what we're trying to do is to help. The leaders are trying to help you to be discerning, to use the Word of God to be discerning. So it's been, it's been a couple of years ago, several years ago, I heard a song on the radio. See, these are things from without. It wasn't from in the church. It was from outside the church, and I heard it on, I'm assuming it was a Christian radio. Man, I liked it. It was a choir. They... Oh, they, they were really, they were good. And I listened to the words pretty carefully. I, they, you know, not the best, but they weren't heretical. And I thought, wow, that's really good. And I thought, I thought, I'm going to go home. I'm going to Google this so that I can get the album, download it, 
on my iPhone and listen to it and then maybe give this song to, and this is before you were here, Jonathan, give it to our, our worship leader, our music leader, so they can do this song. I went home and I Googled it, the song. I was blown away. It was a song, great choir. It just happened to be the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. And I began to listen to other songs on that album. We talked about literally in the songs. Songs can be a powerful force for indoctrinating about Jesus not being the Son of God because that is their belief. Now, discernment. Should I have given that song, not the album, but the song, because it was a good song, and the song was okay from the words, not the best, but it was okay. Should I have given that song to our music director to have you sing in the church? Oh, come on, it's just a little bit of heresy. Yeah. I've used this illustration before. If somebody offered you a glass of cold water, which I'm looking forward to after the sermon. And they put a tiny, tiny drop of raw sewage. Would you drink the water? Well, no, but it's just a little bit. Surely your immune system can handle that. Do you see, do you see the, the problem with not being discerning in the church of Jesus Christ and what leaders are, are, are called to do? We're not... We're not the, the, the music and the gospel Nazis. But we are hopefully responsible for sharing with you certain things that you need to be aware of. I'll give you another situation. A book was uh, uh, proposed to me. It was a good book. Throughout the chapters of the book, this person explained the gospel, and he did it very, very well. Gave great encouragement. And then came the appendix. This person put a new doctrine in the appendix. He entitled his new doctrine, this is totally not in Scripture, Transdispensationalism. Somebody said his hope had become his doctrine. And what he said was, to, to boil it down, was that if a person who's living in the far reaches of the world, who's never heard the Bible, who's never heard the gospel, who's never heard of Jesus Christ, if that person responds to the light that is given to him, he will be saved and go to heaven. That is absolutely not true. What happened to Acts chapter 4, there is no other name given under heaven whereby one must be saved. Now that is a teaching that is so common even among evangelicals that if people respond to the light they have, they will be saved without ever trusting in Jesus. Is that heresy? Is the person a heretic? I don't know. But he's teaching heresy, at least with that part. He had that much good and that much that was heresy. Should I recommend the book for you to study? No. Now, someday you'll pick up the book and hopefully you will be grounded in the Word well enough where you do your own fact-checking and you get to it. Here's a third example, a sermon. So I've had a song, a book, and now a sermon. A sermon... Uh, in which a man res respected. Bo both of these men teach to thousands of people. This man said, and I quote, the Christian faith does not rise and fall on the accuracy of the 66 ancient documents of the Bible. If they don't rise and fall on that, what do they rise and fall on? Then he said in a sermon two years ago, 
we don't believe in the resurrection because of the Bible. He even anticipated a rebuttal. Somebody would say, but the Bible is how we know about the resurrection. And he said emphatically, no, actually it's not. Overlooking verses and passages like Paul said, this is gospel doctrine. The examples I've given you are gospel issues that are important. Paul said, I'm telling you, this is the the most important thing that I can tell you. This is what is going to save you if you stand in this. First importance, three elements, that Christ died for our sins. How do you know? In accordance with the Scriptures. Is that true? That He was buried and that He was raised on the third day? How do you know? In accordance with the Scriptures. Paul said in Acts 20 that savage wolves are going to come in from without. That doesn't mean necessarily walk through the back doors of the church and become a member. They're going to arise from within. That's another thing. But many times what we hear is just out there and it comes to us. And when certain things are put into our hands, we must respond and we must say, no, the book is going to be that which is authoritative which is clear, and which is sufficient. Jesus said this at the last, or John said this at the last part of his gospel, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Paul is saying that the rudder of God's Word, by the way, I tell you the names, I told you the Mormon church, the name of the man who wrote the book, preaches to thousands, very well respected, is a man by the name of Tony Evans. The name of the man who preached that sermon where you don't need the gospel to tell you, you don't need the Bible to tell you about the resurrection, one of the most influential young pastors in America, Andy Stanley. As I said earlier, I I think I need to come back and do um, a more well-defined... I'm I'm looking at these things and I'm thinking, here's what Paul said to Timothy. Does this... Does this mean anything for today? And I believe that it does. Because he said this, here's sound doctrine. Sound doctrine and a good conscience. That, uh, he doesn't mean conscience in, in, in the, the sense that everybody has uh, a, 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 an inner compass that tells them what's right and wrong. Boy, you cannot depend on that. Here's what it means. Here's what he's saying. A good conscience is that which takes the Word of God and obeys it. So for a believer, if I'm disobeying the Word of God, my conscience is not clean. And he's saying, here's what you need. Here are the two weapons. To to you and to me, we need the Word of God and we need a conscience, in other words, the inner sense of obeying what God says without argument. The things that need to be held tightly. Now, let's move on in this verse and then finish out. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. What did they reject? It's right there. What do they reject? The faith, the Word of God, once for all delivered to the saints, and a good conscience. They stopped obeying what they knew to be true, or maybe they didn't get it quite right, but they went ahead with it to their destruction. They started teaching. These were some of the certain men who were teaching other doctrine. 
to use a military metaphor again, they dropped their weapons, the faith, a good conscience, and they went AWOL. And you know what is even more dangerous? They went AWOL, and they were behind enemy lines. Do we, were these men lost or were they saved? Now, I'll just give you this verse. The only way that we know that people are ultimately saved is if they endure to the end. We can have that personal sense of the, the, the security of our salvation. I don't doubt that. We teach that here, the assurance of salvation. We do that. But when we look out at people, the, the only thing that Jesus gave is the only sure thing that tells us that people are truly saved is that they will endure to the end. By the way, I shared last week about John Newton. He, he said this about heaven. I didn't tell you this, did I? Okay, you're saying, tell you what? <laughs> tell us and then we'll tell you if we don't. I said this in Sunday school. John Newton, I love this. He said, when I get to heaven, I'm going to be amazed by three things. I'm going to be amazed when I look around and I, and I see and I don't see people that I thought would be there. Second thing I'm going to be amazed about, I'm going to look around and I'm going to be amazed by the people that I didn't think would be there. Third thing he said, the thing that I'll be most amazed about is the fact that I will see myself there. Enduring to the end. Now, this is, this is sad. They didn't make a shipwreck of the faith. The faith has been handed down to us. It's still just as sure. It's true whether you believe it or not, but they certainly made shipwreck of their faith. And then it says, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. You know what this does? Although it's really sad, this phrase gives me great hope that these were true believers. In the church, immature. Turning over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. There's only one other place that that's given in the Scripture. And that's in 1 Corinthians. We'll look at that in just a second. 1 Corinthians where the young man who was living in gross immorality was turned over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit might be saved. That again, indicating that he was a true believer. You know what this is? This is a picture of the end result of church discipline. Now, I have no authority, we have no authority to exercise church discipline on people out there, but certainly within the church, this is the final step. We go to a brother or a sister. If they listen to us, we want our brother. If they don't, we go with others. I don't know how long this process takes, but finally, when that person is hardened, He is basically excommunicated. He's put out of the church. By the way, the church is that safety net. He's put out of taking the Lord's Supper, remembering the gospel by which he was saved. He's put out into the world. Oh, who is the prince of the world? And all of a sudden, it looks to me like what Paul is doing is not a cruel, mean, vindictive thing, turning him over to Satan but exercising church discipline so that that brother can be brought back into the faith, can learn not to blaspheme and be restored to fellowship. And that's what we believe. The person's eyes will be opened. They'll be brought back to repentance and restored to fellowship. By the way, that happened in 1 Corinthians 5. So let me just share with you just a couple of things why church discipline is really good and why Paul would practice such a thing here because it preserves the purity of the church. That's what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Get the leaven out. Purify yourselves. That also 
the restoration of a brother. See, church discipline is made primarily for that, for restoration, not just the purity of the church, but for restoring erring brothers and sisters. And then the last thing, for other believers to see the seriousness of not leading a God-honoring life. Are you fighting today? I'm not talking about physical skirmishes, emotional skirmishes, even job skirmishes, even relationship skirmishes, skirmishes, except insofar as the gospel pertains to them. Are you holding fast the Word of God? A good conscience? So that you can wage the good warfare? to which you've been called, the noble cause? Are you asking God for a deeper sense of wisdom when it comes to interpreting the Word of God and applying the Word of God? Are you asking Him for the discernment that you need as a dad or as a grandfather, as a mom or as a grandmother, as a leader, as an ABF teacher, as a Sunday school teacher, to teach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that that is so. I want you to bow your heads with me and we're going to enter into a time of thinking about this. If you have, if you have walked away from the truth, if you have walked away from that good conscience, then today is the day when you need to return. If you've never received Jesus Christ, today is the day when you need to repent of your sins, confess Christ as Lord and Savior. But during this time of taking the Lord's Supper that we will do in just a few moments, it's a wonderful opportunity. It's for believers, first of all. It's for believers. If you're not a believer or if you're a believer that's not in good fellowship, then you do not need to be taking the Lord's Supper. It doesn't mean you're perfect. If you have some sin in your life, then what do you need to do as you take the Lord's Supper? Confess it. Repent of it. Thank the Lord that these symbols represent the gospel by which you are saved. And that's the reason that we take it as a reminder and as an opportunity for you to repent and confess and to be restored and thank God for the broken body in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the study that you give us from your word. We pray for that spirit of discernment and wisdom. We pray now that as we partake of the Lord's Supper that you would help us to realize that we can never be worthy enough to take it. That's something I hear all the time, Lord. Of course we're not worthy. But in taking the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming the death and the burial and resurrection of the one who is worthy, even Jesus Christ. And so help us to do that, to confess where we need to, to repent, and to be restored to fellowship, wonderful fellowship with you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.